Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On the program today, Mulroney injection. You're not the leader to follow. You're the leader to lead. Brian Mulroney injects himself into the controversy over Aaron O'Toole's stance on vaccines. Why does Mr. Mulroney say the conservative leader, who he supported in the election, is not showing leadership? And why does he say the environment and China are the biggest threats facing Canada? Today we have a wide-ranging conversation with the 18th Prime Minister of Canada, Brian Mulroney. And then, betrayal? Now it's time to give the primacy to the families and to the children. And just do the right thing. Why is the federal government appealing the court decision that orders it to pay billions of dollars to Indigenous children who are in the child welfare system? Is it a betrayal or is there really another way to compensate the victims? The Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, Mark Miller, joins us. Plus, more green. We want to see bolder ambitions to reduce emissions. We need to have higher targets. What does the NDP leader Jagmeet Singh want the government to do on climate as he joins Justin Trudeau at the United Nations Climate Change Conference COP26 starting tomorrow? Will his party support the Liberal government's new targeted pandemic benefits? We'll speak to NDP leader Jagmeet Singh on that. And the Scrum is here to break down the new cabinet. What's the biggest challenge for Trudeau 3.0? This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Is Canada really back? Well, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made that declaration about the country's place in the world when he was first elected Prime Minister back in 2015, but it's 2021, and now it's being put to the test at the G20 summit this weekend in Rome. High-stakes talks are happening on climate and the pandemic recovery, and they will continue into the next week at the UN COP26 climate conference in Glasgow. That opens tomorrow. CTV's senior political correspondent Glenn McGregor is traveling with the Prime Minister. Glenn, what's the latest? Evan, it's a common complaint that the G20 summits produce a lot of talk, but often not many binding commitments. But here after the first day in Rome, Canada has at least one deliverable, literally the delivery of more vaccines to poor countries, 200 million doses by the end of next year. And that's a bump from the 100 million Canada pledged at the G7 back in June. Now, the focus of the summit shifting today from the pandemic to climate change. The countries represented at the G20 account for at least three quarters of the world's emissions. So leaders here are under pressure to increase the reduction targets above and beyond the Paris Agreement. Canada, of course, has already promised a 40 to 45 percent reduction by 2030. But the G20 works by consensus. So the challenge today will be getting some of the world's biggest emitters, that's China and India, to agree to new targets and also clear ways that they can achieve them that leaders can take to the COP26 conference in Glasgow tomorrow. Evan. All right, thanks, Glenn. As mentioned, Canada will be looking to renew its climate change mandate this week at the UN Climate Change Conference. Longtime environmental activist and the new Environment and Climate Change Minister Stephen Guibault will, of course, be there. He's now tasked with the Liberal government's attempt to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 40 to 45 percent below 2005 levels by 2030, which is a big number. When Canada's overall greenhouse gas emissions, by the way, have dropped by only 1% between 2005 and 2019. Now, one Canadian leader who's been very vocal about the environment is the former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. During his tenure, of course, he negotiated the Acid Rain Treaty with the U.S. to improve air quality and created eight national parks. So, does Mr. Mulroney think Canada is on the right path to fight climate change? And how should Canada deal with its complicated relationships with both the U.S. and China? Former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney joins us now. Mr. Mulroney, first of all, pleasure to see you and see you in good health. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Evan. 
Mr. Trudeau's on the world stage. All the leaders are right now. It's a difficult time post-pandemic. Brian Mulroney, what is the biggest concern you have, the biggest global challenge right now facing Canada and the globe? China. China and, and climate. Those are the two international challenges that require strong uh, principal leadership. You know, prime ministers uh, are not elected uh, for popularity. They're elected to provide leadership. And there are times when Canadians have to be told not what they want to know, uh, but what they have to know. Not what they want to hear, but what they have to know. And what they have to know is that those are the two main challenges. And if Canada is going to play a constructive international role, it must be in tandem with other industrialized nations dealing with those two matters. In a recent speech, you said global warming is, quote, the most daunting challenge facing the world today. Do you support Canada's higher emissions targets that they've committed to, you know, the re reduction of emissions 41 to 45 percent by 2030 and, you know, that carbon price at 170 bucks by 2030. Are those measures that you support? Uh, yes, they are. Uh, you know, it, it all depends how far you can see into the future. But based on the information and the data today, these are not unreasonable targets. And uh, we have the wherewithal, I think, and, and the leadership to meet them. You remember the majority of members voted against a proposal to say climate change is real. And you recently wrote, now is not the time to imprison ourselves in ideological arguments. What is your message to conservatives who don't support a price on carbon, who don't want to acknowledge that, quote, climate change is real? Uh, what is your message to them? The message is it's inexorable. It's going to happen. So get with the program. You can't stop the tides of history from washing over you. And this is a vital moment in Canadian history and indeed uh, for the planet. And we, we should be there actively. And also, if we can, in a leadership role on the international scene, you know, we did it. I know how difficult it was with acid rain. And that was just a negotiation, a complex negotiation with the United States. It's a much greater challenge and more complex and more daunting. Uh, internationally with respect to climate change but we can be part Canada can be part of the solution but you can't do that if you're locked in positions that you took before the reality of the drama of this situation um, hit upon us all so now we know how challenging and brutal this exercise is going to be if we don't act so I, I think it's time for us uh, to get with the program. Let me go on the international stage too. We have a complicated relationship with the United States. Uh, President Joe Biden, he just released a plan for the budget. It's not yet legislation, but it does include Buy American provisions for the auto sector. The Canadian government warned about it. They said this will have an adverse effect on Canada. Now they're seeing it. There's a dispute over the Line 5 pipeline, as you know. Um, how do you assess how Canada the Trudeau-Biden relationship right now, and what do those Buy American legislation approaches tell you about how to approach it? Well, um, I think personally, they have a, uh, a very good relationship, uh, Mr. Trudeau and President Biden, uh, but the results of that are not seen yet. So far, we haven't gotten very far uh, with the Democrats down there. There are a lot of protectionists in there. 
There's that extreme left wing that right as, of, as we speak today is uh, holding up uh, President Biden's uh, major programs. So, uh, you know, but, but the prime minister has to see beyond that and get down there and get his hands dirty, working with the Americans and saying, this is wrong for our relationship. We've had the best relationship in the history of the world with the Americans. And they are lucky to have us as, as their neighbors and friends, as we are fortunate to have them. So let's not wreck this thing. The prime minister's got to say, this is unacceptable to Canada privately. And here's why. Make his case, and I'll bet you a dollar to a donut that if Justin Trudeau does that with Joe Biden, uh, things are going to happen. China, another big file. They're not even at COP26. We've seen the two Michaels come home after three years. No. Um, we have seen fundamental concerns about a potential genocide against the Uyghurs, the repression in Hong Kong. This is a new China under Xi Jinping. How does Canada navigate this challenge? What is our China policy audit? What, what, what ought it be? Well, I think that an important element of that policy, not exclusively, but an important element, should be to, to cause to happen uh, what happened when President Reagan was alive and leading the alliance in respect of the Soviet Union with nuclear missiles all over the place and us being threatened regularly by the Soviet Union with that. We came together, first the G7, and NORAD, and NATO, and all of the major industrialized economies. And basically what was said was, President Reagan, you're the leader of our alliance, of the Western alliance. We give you a mandate to speak to the Soviet Union, tell them what's going to happen if there's any nonsense from their side, and tell them what's going to happen if we cooperate together for the mutual benefit of our countries. And President Reagan did that. When he went to Moscow or to Iceland or meetings in the United States, the leaders of the Soviet Union knew that he was speaking for the entire industrialized and free world. He wasn't just alone. He spoke with enormous authority and clout. And that's what has to happen with President Biden dealing with China on their behalf but also on ours. Just last thing on foreign affairs. Mr. Trudeau's had five foreign affairs ministers in six years. The newest one is Melanie Jolie. What's her biggest challenge? Well, her biggest challenge is to reassert Canada's role as a major player uh, in the world. First of all, we've got to honor our own obligations. We're delinquent in our NATO payments. We're delinquent uh, in respect of uh, the commitment for foreign aid to seven-tenths of one percent, we're way, way down. Uh, and you don't get anywhere unless the, your interlocutors know that you're a serious country that pays its bills. We can't assert uh, leadership claims if we're not honoring our basic commitments to the world community. And we're not. So she has to deal with this. Canadians are facing tough economic times. Uh Recovery from the pandemic, which is a huge issue. Inflation is at an 18-year high. Growth is down, projected by the bank. Uh, inflation is up. Uh, obviously, we've got a debt of over a trillion dollars. Um, how concerned are you now about inflation and the state of the Canadian economy? Well, I'm confident about the future of the Canadian economy, simply because uh, we have a people that is industrious and uh, productive and very smart. That's the definition of Canadians 
in respect of the economy. So I'm confident about the future. In regard to how we got here with the pandemic, no prime minister, to the best of my knowledge, has ever been called upon to deal with such a major and complex problem. And I have to acknowledge without any reluctance that the Trudeau government uh, did as good a job as could be done uh, in keeping Canada Canadians safe and secure during this terrible, uh, historic uh, challenge that, uh, that uh, he ha they had to deal with. So no, I'm confident about the future. I don't like infl the inflation. I don't like the heavy spending that is not necessary in all circumstances. They have to be very prudent about that. Okay, Mr. Mulroney, stay right there because when we come back, did Aaron O'Toole lose the last election over his stance on vaccines? How would Brian Mulroney handle Conservative MPs who still refuse to get vaccinated? And what does the Conservative Party need to do to win an election? Part two of our conversation with former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney comes up next. Stay right here with Question Period. Brian Mulroney and Aaron O'Toole, they were on the same stage, but are they really on the same page, especially on the issue of mandatory vaccines? And the answer is no. Aaron O'Toole's position on mandatory vaccines for MPs who come back to work in Parliament keeps changing. Check out his latest position. All of our members in the House of Commons will be vaccinated. We respect the, the rules, and as we challenge the, the precedent set by the Board of Internal Economy, we will respect the rules both before our question of privilege and after. So he accepts the rules, but he actually wants to overturn the rules, and he still won't say how many of his MPs are actually fully vaccinated. So where should the Conservative Party stand on mandatory vaccines for MPs? So did this position cost Aaron O'Toole the election? Well, let's go back to our conversation with the former Prime Minister, Brian Mulroney. Vaccine mandates have become extremely controversial during the election, as you know. In the building behind me, which you know really well, uh, there's now a mandate that all MPs have to be vaccinated. This has been a difficult issue for Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. He doesn't like that they've been forced to do it, but he's going to abide by it. They've been flipping and flopping back and forth. I just want to know if you were the leader, given the situation, if you were a Conservative leader, would you say all my MPs have got to be vaccinated? End of story. Is that What, what would you do in that situation? Well, the, well, of course. That's leadership. That's why I was, I was there. That's why the leaders are there. I mean, I'm not, who am I to argue uh, with tens of thousands of brilliant scientists and, and doctors who urge the population desperately to get vaccinated? And we're going to have some members of my caucus, for example, who are going to say, I'm not going to do it. They have to do it. Look, Mr. O'Toole has a difficult challenge because of some of the components of his caucus, and I respect that. And I respect what he's done to try and deal with it. Uh, but I've encountered situations like that when I was a leader of the party and prime minister. Uh, you know, for example, there were two, two members of parliament who wouldn't support the GST. Right. Out they went. There are others who wouldn't support language issues. Out they went. And so uh, I think that the answer to your question, the simple answer, is look, uh, you're not the leader to follow. You're the leader to lead. And if you think this is in the national interest, Canada's interest, you get your members of parliament in line and they have to support what you're doing. 
and you've been an advisor to him. I know you supported him. But is that one of those things you think it's hurting him because no one can figure out his position? I support it. I don't support it. Testing's is good. Your advice to Mr. O'Toole would be you want to be a leader. You support vaccines. If your members aren't vaccinated, do what I did. Boot them out. Is that your advice? This is a no-brainer. That's, of course, what you have to do. Uh, we can't have the example of members of the Conservative Caucus defying not only their leadership, but defying the reality of science-based knowledge and recommendations from around the world. And by the way, the policy is working. And so, uh, no, I think that this is something that is a, a natural for a leader. Why did the Conservatives lose this election? I think they were doing very well for the first couple of weeks, and then they lost momentum simply because, I think, Mr. Trudeau, quite brilliantly, poked holes in the Conservative positions on exactly what you and I are talking about. Vaccines and the health care and the problems that were going on in Alberta at the time. This played a major role in, in the subsequent defeat of the Conservative Party. There is a crisis in Conservative politics. You saw what happened in the United States and Donald Trump. There's a version, a populist version of conservatism. You see it in Europe. There's a version that Aaron O'Toole is trying to yank back. He said, I'm transforming the Conservative Party. It's not your father's Conservative Party. Uh, what is the Conservative Party and what does it need to be to be relevant? Does it need to be the progressive Conservative Party of Brian Mulroney? What does it need to be? It doesn't need to be the progressive conservative party of Brian Mulroney, although, as I remember, Brian Mulroney did pretty well in two general elections as a progressive conservative, winning the largest victory uh, in Canadian history. And with his second one, uh, he was the first conservative leader since Sir John A. Macdonald to win back-to-back -back majorities in 100 years. So that's not so bad as a result. Uh, but I think that the party itself St. John, uh, Sir John A. himself said the Conservatives must be a progressive Conservative Party. And what he, Sir John was saying by that is you have to be reasonable and thoughtful and appeal to the broad middle class of Canada. For example, on the environment, Canadians, middle class Canadians are doing fairly well. They don't need little tax cuts for hockey sticks and that kind of stuff uh, to appeal to them. They, for example, in that case, in my judgment, need and require a policy to ensure that they are able to pass on to their children and grandchildren a pristine environment. That's what they love. That's what they need. That's Canada. If you don't have a policy that reflects that urge in Canadians, that demand, that need on the environment, you're not going to win. And so the party has to adjust itself, unless it wants to lose a number of a couple of more elections, they have to adjust to the reality that they have to have a broad-based uh, party that appeals uh, to Canadians. Otherwise, they're going to lose. Mr. Mulroney, uh, you are well known for the largest land claim settlement in history, the creation of Nunavut, as you've spoken about. But as you also know that even during your time, as everyone's now talking about indigenous reconciliation, the discovery of unmarked graves at residential institutions, there were still residential institutions when you were prime minister. Mm. And you know, I spoke to Mr. Kretschian about this last week. He said he didn't know about the abuses. Did you mm. know about the abuses? Do you regret not shutting down those institutions during your time as prime minister? Well, I, no, we, we didn't really 
know that much about it at the time, but one of the reasons why I appointed the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Affairs, led by George Erasmus and Mr. Justice René Dussault, who produced a report. I appointed that in 1991, they reported in 1996, and that is the solution. They, they articulated the solution to the challenge Canada faces in dealing for justice with our Aboriginal people, the, which has to be resolved before anything else can be, move, can be moved. And the, the answers are there in the Royal Commission report. And they've been neglected by subsequent governments since 1996 with very little happening. But the solution is there. A government just has to sit down and read that Royal Commission report and say, hey, I'm going to implement most of this and I'm going to do it on a priority basis. That's the answer. Again, you know, I, I speak to, to elders and, and, and community leaders. They will say governments like yours, Mr. Kretchens and others, all knew about the abuses, and they should apologize for their role in what they call a cultural genocide. What's your response? Mr. Kretchens was Minister of Indian and Northern Affairs for six years. According to the media, lots of reports were made to him or to his department about this, and nothing was done. We had no such experience in our time in office, uh, but of course, if there were a national apology uh, were required in Parliament, I would certainly endorse that. Of course, we have to treat people fairly. You know, there's nothing wrong with offering a sincere apology accompanied by the appropriate compensation. Uh, and I would be honored to join in with others if that were the conclusion of the Government of Canada. Brian Mulroney, always a pleasure to have you on the program, sir. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, Evan. All right, coming up, appeal or betrayal? Why did the federal government appeal a crucial decision on compensation for Indigenous children? Minister Mark Miller joins us next with his reaction. Stay right here with Question Period. disappointed that they still feel it's necessary to litigate against First Nations children. When will it stop? When will the federal government stop fighting Indigenous kids in court? That's part of the question from Cindy Blackstock, the Executive Director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada. That's what she thought when she first heard the news that the federal government is appealing that federal court decision that forces the federal government to pay $40,000 to Indigenous kids who were underfunded in the child welfare system and suffered when they were removed from their homes. This could impact at least 50,000 Indigenous kids and amounts to billions of dollars. But the federal government claims the appeal is actually the road to a real solution. They say the parties have now agreed to try to suspend the legal process of the appeal and spend the next two months trying to find a deal. Well, is that really true? Why didn't this happen before? And what did the federal government actually put on the table to hit this short pause on their controversial legal decision? Joining me now is the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, Mark Miller. Minister, good to have you on the program. As you know, Indigenous leaders urge the federal government do not appeal this decision. Pay the compensation, the $40,000 uh, that these kids were owed. Last Wednesday, the new Minister of Indigenous Services, your partner in this, Patty Hyder, literally said, and I'm quoting her, I believe it is in no one's interest to continue litigation and that compensation is due. But, Minister, litigation is continuing. I understand there's a pause, but you, the government still appealed. Why? 
Well, first, Evan, no one wants to appeal this case. Um, this is something that we did not take lightly, and we haven't appealed part of the decision. Uh, that's the reality of it. What we've done is we've said, and I don't like the imagery, is we are putting down our swords. We're, we're not filing motions and um, opposition, uh, oppositional papers. We're sitting down and we're saying, let's hash out an agreement that is global in nature and goes and, and touches on one thing that is so important to all the parties, which is making sure this model doesn't reproduce itself. It's what the parties have said time and time again, and we're willing to do it with a significant financial package on long-term reform, major capital investments, so that we're repairing the harm that's been caused over decades, but also moving forward to have a system that, um, that doesn't prejudice Indigenous children. Okay, I'm going to press you on that. In the original Human Rights Tribunal decision, the government would be paying billions of dollars to up to 50,000 kids who were impacted by the child welfare system. You're saying that in the, since the federal court, um, you, the federal government lost in the federal court, you're saying that you've now since offered everybody involved a, ma a financial package that would be more than the billions of dollars that the federal government would already have to pay out to these kids who were involved in this and that that has allowed everybody to take 60 days to try to sort this out? Yeah, and it won't be an easy 60 days, Evan, and it's more than 50,000 children. It could easily be double that. Uh, this is not an insignificant investment, and indeed it's something we need to compensate for for the harm that's been caused. No one is shying away from that fact. What we do know is that these are very complex files. There are three litigation parties, some of them purporting to represent the same children, uh, looking for proper compensation for children that suffered harm. Again, let me repeat, the CHRT order, if it were implemented word for word tomorrow, would only compensate children up to $40,000 and not proceed to long-term reform. So what we're saying to the parties, and the parties have agreed, is let's pause this, let's sit down, let's spend some time productively in the next 60 days, not opposing each other with lawyers, but sitting down and putting our heads together with the Caring Society, with AFN and other parties, and hashing out a solution that is global in nature, doesn't re-traumatize children, and that actually fixes the system. If there's 100,000 kids and the minimum is 40,000, if that's the floor, that's what the Human Rights Tribunal said, that's what the federal court upheld. Is the math 100,000 kids at minimum 40,000 or more? Is that the floor, $40,000? We've said we are, we, are, we, we are not interested in departing from um, a floor of 40,000 for removed children, um, but there are a lot of interwoven parts. Uh, there are children that are not caught by the order, that are ca caught in part by the class actions. We need to sit down with those parties and have those discussions so that everything is fair. I get your intentions here. I'm not trying to cast aspersions, but is it an act of hubris that you think that the government in 60 days can solve a problem that the federal government has been fighting for 14 years? You've lost court orders, federal court, fighting and fighting and fighting. Now you lose again. You say, you know what we'll do? We'll solve it all in two months before the end of the year. Like, how do you propose to solve something that you haven't solved in 14 years in eight weeks? Look, it, it is a compressed timeline. It, it will no doubt be messy and emotions will run high, but we have the good faith and, um, and, 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 the, and up to now the trust of the parties that this will move forward in a good way. Achieving long-term reform, getting a proper compensation package. Yes, it's ambitious, but we believe that we can achieve something and perhaps even in the worst case scenario, winnow down um, an appeal that no one wants to the very minimum while being able to proceed in compensation right. for the children that have suffered harm. Um, this is something that is important not only for 
us as a government, but for everyone in Canada and Indigenous peoples. And it's something that uh, we've agreed to do with the parties. Um, it, is, it is not something that would perhaps have been done in the past. And what we know over the course of 14 years is that there is a huge cost to inaction, and it's often been on the backs of Indigenous children. You know, I, I've spoken, as you probably have, to Cindy Blackstock, who brought this case, who's been fighting for 14 years. On Friday, I spoke to her. She said, you know, She's just stunned that this appeal is going on. Pam Palmiter, Mi'kmaq lawyer from Ryerson University. I'm going to play you a clip of her. She said she's so heartbroken to hear about this. Um, I'm going to play you a clip of what she just said. Apparently, we're going to court <laughs> again. Kids, uh, you know, who are only have one lifetime. They have millions of nights away from their families, hoping that the government would make the right decision. When we hear ministers just this week saying, this litigation is in no one's best interest and we have to work harder, this doesn't cut it. So, Minister, just not a lot of trust there. This doesn't cut it. What would you say to Pam Palmer now? Well, look, uh, I have no reason to, um, to believe she would trust us and, and, and in her position as hard as I, I can't put myself in it, I wouldn't blame her. Um, what we have said is we're going to sit down and do this the right way. We know that over the course of 14 years, um, there, is a, there is a cost to inaction, and that cost continues. Um, that is why we've made that undertake, undertaking for long-term reform. Last question. What, what if you do, can't solve this 14-year-old legal dispute in an intensive two months? Then what? As I understand it, then, then it goes back to litigation. So the litigation's actually still hanging over this like a sword of Damocles. Is that right? Well, the sword of Damocles is hanging over the crown right now, uh, and that's clear. What, what, what we know and what the Prime Minister has said is these children will be compensated. Uh, we are sitting down in order to find a global solution. I won't presume the outcome, and I don't presume to say that it's going to be easy. What we do know is we've made a significant offer on long-term reform, which is very appealing because um, this is a model that's broken and that we need to fix. The government since 2016 has made significant investments, but we need to make more. We recognize that, but we can't make it from on high in Ottawa. We need that work together with the party with the IFSD reports that have come up with financial models that are, that are sober and appropriate. Uh, and we will work with, uh, with Dr. Blackstock and all the advocacy that she brings to the table and knowledge uh, to get this done in the right way. Uh, Minister Miller, I really appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Evan. All right, coming up next, calls to action on climate. What are NDP leader Jagmeet Singh's climate demands for Justin Trudeau? Will he support the new targeted pandemic benefits when Parliament resumes? Jagmeet Singh, NDP leader, joins us next. Stay right here with questions. So along with uh, Justin Trudeau, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is now also heading to COP26. He's there now, despite Canada's good grade on the climate file. He says more needs to be done. On Wednesday, Mr. Singh said the Liberal government should commit to a 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions below 2005 levels by 2030. He also calls for the end of uh, gas and oil subsidies with more investment in renewable energy and a plan to help the oil and gas sector workers transition. What does he make of the Liberal plan going into COP26? And what about other issues as Parliament is getting set finally to return? Let's find out. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh joins us now. Um, okay, you said you wanted to see Canada's reduction of greenhouse gases reduce more than the Canadian level. But the Canadian level, given the f is pretty ambitious already. Uh, a new plan says it's actually achievable. How much further should they go? Well, we've been saying it should be 50%. The United States and President Biden, they've committed to 50%. And we're saying that that's where Canada needs to be at. So far, Mr. Trudeau has given a range of between 40 and 45. We want to do everything possible to make that goal more, more ambitious. 
We want Canada to be leading, and to be a leader, we have to be bold, and we have to have right. higher targets in our reduction of emissions. And that's what we're pushing for. Now, let's be fair. A lot of critics say you're actually comparing apples and oranges to the U.S. Yes, the U.S. is calling between 50 and 53 or 55 percent reduction, but they got low-hanging fruit. They have a huge, almost 20 percent of their emissions are coal. The U.S. is, is dealing with a coal issue that Canada is really has largely dealt with. So are you making a fair comparison and making me too onerous a task for Canada? Well, Canada has to do its part. And if we want to be global leaders, then we have to be showing with example 50% is still uh, something that doesn't even get us. It gets us closer to our goals. At 40 and 45, it's just not good enough. It doesn't match the science. So we've been pushing for 50. We campaigned on that. We believe that Canada can do more. And so far, what we've seen from the Liberals is a lot of talk, but when it comes to the action, they haven't really been there. And that's why we're saying let's have a bold target and a clear plan to achieve okay, it. So, so and one of the concrete ways we can do that is by eliminating the fossil fuel subsidies, something Justin Trudeau promised to do. But instead of doing it, he has, he's actually increased them to some of the highest levels they've ever been. I know you say, oh, we've got a transition. But how? What exactly do you do with folks who are, who are seeing plummeting investment in their fee? They can't get investment in the oil sands right now. And gas prices are through the roof because we've got shortages. What we've seen over the past number of years is a, a direction that the global markets are headed in. And we've seen major car manufacturers announce the end of combustion engine vehicles and the fact that they're no longer going to produce them. We know where the world is headed, and we have a responsibility as a government that if we're fighting the climate crisis and we know where global markets are headed, we can never leave workers behind. And that's how they feel right now. There's no clear plan. What does it look like for a worker who's right now worried about their livelihood and their job. Mr. Singh, let, let me go to the other big issue, of course, is the pandemic. Uh, your party disagrees, and you disagree with the new targeted benefits announced by the federal government. You said uh, you, you might withhold votes when Parliament resumes the 22nd of November. Um, what's the problem with these targeted benefits? Because you've even seen the Bank of Canada say, look, we're ending our government bond purchasing because we're basically returned to pre-pandemic employment levels. So... So what's wrong with targeted benefits if the million jobs and we're back to where we started? Why do we still need them? Well, we know that there's a lot of people that can't go back to their work. There's hundreds of thousands of Canadians that are relying on the, the CR, the CRB at this point. And these are workers that are in either they're in the tourism sector, they're in hospitality sectors that haven't returned to normal levels. There are they a lot still, of people but they still are. They're going to get targeted support. There's literally a tourism right. and hospitality program announced. Well, right now, what we're seeing is there's a lot of Canadians that are going to be left high and dry who can't go back to work. Uh, there are a lot of people that still can't find those jobs. And there's this false notion that by somehow having uh, some folks that, that need to be on the CRB, that that's impacting the employment market. And uh, that's not at all the case. We know that the issue with, with workplace and worker shortage is a structural issue. And it's something that's going to be fixed with immigration and better connection between workers, training and then jobs. Uh, so that's a false narrative that's been put out there. They say they have legislation that they can pass. And I spoke to the employment minister, Carla Qualtro, said, oh, we can. And I spoke to Christian Freeland. We can pass this without a doubt in three weeks. Are you going to vote for that legislation or not? What we're going to do is uh, lay out some of our concerns. And the two concerns that I've laid out, uh, those are things that can be fixed immediately as well. There should be no clawing back of vulnerable seniors income month to month. And there are folks that are in no position to ever repay their serve because they are low-income people who are struggling. And there should be amnesty for those folks. And these are things that we can negotiate and work on so that people who are the most vulnerable are not put in a worse position. What is your reaction to the federal government's decision 
to appeal the child welfare case again uh, that came out to appeal the decision uh, that would have had them compensate uh, Indigenous children who are in the child welfare services uh, system since 2006. What's your reaction to that? They are betraying the principles of, of reconciliation. What, what the Liberal government is doing is continuing the legacy of discrimination. What they're effectively doing is, while we are still grieving from the horrors of the residential school discoveries of unmarked graves, something that Indigenous communities knew about for a long time, but the rest of Canada is reeling from the horror of that discovery, the, the federal government, Justin Trudeau, is effectively taking the next generation of children, the survivors of residential schools, their kids are now being fought in court by this government. That is a blow to reconciliation and a betrayal of the trust of, of Indigenous now, now what is the wrong thing to do. What, what do you make of their um, reaction saying, no, we want to compensate, we will compensate, we just don't think this is the right instrument for compensation. That they will, they're not fighting compensation. They say they're fighting this way to compensate. They're on the wrong side of history. And it'll go down as they're on the wrong side of history. They're fighting Indigenous kids at a time when Canadians believe we need to do everything we can to right the wrongs of residential schools. And one of the key steps we could do is to stop fighting Indigenous kids in court, stop fighting the ruling of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal decision, and instead work on fixing the problem, compensating the survivors, and work on fixing the problems so it never happens again. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, got to leave it there. I appreciate your time today. Thanks. Thanks so much. All right, when we come back, Trudeau Cabinet 3.0. What does the Liberal Cabinet shake-up signal about the direction of the new government? What about climate and COVID? We'll break it all down when the scrum is next, right here on Question Period. From Cabinet to COVID to climate, Prime Minister Trudeau is really trying to reset his government agenda as his third mandate begins. First, he shuffled his Cabinet, ditching big names like Mark Garneau, putting in Melanie Jolie as his fifth foreign affairs minister in six years, and naming Anita Anand as the Minister of National Defence. She took over, of course, from Harjit Sajjan, who's, and she's now tasked with fixing the sexual misconduct crisis within the Canadian Armed Forces. I am thorough, I am determined, I am dogged, and I am results-oriented, and I will be dedicating all of my energies towards this task and this position. The big news also, on the eve of the UN Climate Conference COP26, starts tomorrow, Mr. Trudeau elevated Stephen Guibault, the well-known climate activist, as his new environment minister. So what does that signal? And what does the Trudeau 3.0 cabinet tell us? The Scrum is here to talk about that and the vaccine issue. Joining us now, CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief Joyce Napier, Toronto Star Parliamentary Hill reporter Steph Levitz, and our special guest, former NDP leader and CTV News political commentator Tom Mulcair. Okay, good morning, everyone. Tom, uh, let's start at COP26, which uh, kicks off tomorrow. New Environment Minister Stephen Guibault. What does Mr. Trudeau have to do at this conference to restore credibility in the eyes of some progressives on this file? Well, you know, it's a title like the one that Reuters put out earlier in the week saying this radical has just become in charge of Canada's climate plan for Trudeau. Trudeau wears that as a badge of honor as he walks into the COP meeting in Glasgow. Stephen Gilbo, by the way, I've known him for 20 years, going back to the day when he would do things like a stunt for Greenpeace on the CN Tower. He's an incredible environmentalist. He's highly respected both here in Canada and around the world. And by the way, he's much more seasoned than at that time. 
he's going to surprise a lot of people. But he'll be accompanying Trudeau, and Trudeau will have a lot of credibility because of that. We have not gotten the job done since Paris, 2015, right after Mr. Trudeau became the prime minister. He went to Paris, promised a lot, didn't get it done. What's the political message stuff? you got Stephen Guibault as the minister, and then you got Jonathan Wilkinson, the former environment minister, now in charge of natural resources. So they're, they're kind of a twin pair there. What's the political message, first of all, out west, and what does it signify to you? Well, the other political message Trudeau is sending is the decision to drop Jim Carr from cabinet. Jim Carr was an MP, a Winnipeg um, area MP, who was elevated to this special position in cabinet to be an envoy to the prairies, to smooth over the ruffled feathers between the West and the Trudeau Liberals after they were completely shut out in the region in the last election. In this one, you see Jim Carr and his role simply evaporate, and you see a person put in charge of NRCAN, the National Resources Ministry, coming from the environment portfolio, meaning that there is going to be a wholehearted environmental lens applied right. to every natural resources decision that's getting made. The prairies, I mean, the conservatives you see, they're up in arms about this. They see this as a wholesale rejection of the oil and gas sector. They see, you know, there's folks out there that may see any goodwill that the Liberals may have amassed on this file, any connection they may have made with the West has now, you know, been blown to smithereens. And I'm not sure that Mr. Trudeau cares. Joyce, uh, so this is the first time we're seeing Trudeau 3.0 on the stage, right? You've got this fifth foreign affairs minister, Melanie Jolie, the environment minister, the natural resource minister. So, so here they are at COP26. They just finished the G20. What, what is the big reset message Trudeau's trying to send right now? Well, you know, he, he's trying to send the message that he means business on uh, climate in the climate file. We know that that is a top priority for Canadians. We know it's a top priority in the world, aside from the pandemic. And on the pandemic file, he's actually done really well by his country. Um, but, you know, this is a government that bought a pipeline. This is a, uh, and we are a country of oil and gas production, a country that subsidizes uh, that industry as well. So, you know, Canada may be going there with mixed messages. The other thing, Tom, is, okay, so you got climate and then you got COVID. Um, G20 talks about this post-COVID trying to get out of this and then vaccinating the rest of the world. Well, you know, countries like ours are talking about booster shots. Africa's got like under 5% vaccination rates. And the meanwhile, in the buildings behind us, there's still a debate about it. Uh, Aaron O'Toole saying he accepts now the Board of Internal Economy's position that, yeah, all MPs who come there have to be vaccinated, but he's still going to bring a motion to try to, uh, point of privilege, to try to challenge it and overturn it. Now, you just saw Brian Mulroney on this program earlier saying that he needs to show leadership, and he's not doing it. He should be sacking MPs that are not vaccinated. Brian Mulroney was on stage with him as his endorsement mentor in the campaign. Now is he throwing him under the bus on this vaccine issue? Uh, on the contrary, I think that Mr. O'Toole should listen to his endorsement mentor, Brian Mulroney. You can't, you can't have it both ways. You know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you invite Brian Mulroney into your party to make statements, then you're going to have to take the whole package. Mulroney is, of course, completely right. Look, I was leader of the opposition, as Mr. O'Toole is. I would sometimes have to deal with fringe elements in the caucus or in the party who had their own ideas, and I would say, no, the party's got a position on this, and you have to stand up four square. Mr. O'Toole keeps espousing a position, but the minute he knows that there's a bit of pushback on some fringe of his party, he tries to contradict it. So he's been going around in spirals now for two weeks without even talking about the fact that it gave him fits during the election campaign itself. It is time for Aaron O'Toole to stand up foursquare and talk to his caucus and say, this is the way we're going. Joyce, the world's talking about getting vaccinations. Aaron O'Toole's trying to figure out what his position on it. What are the politics of that in your view? Uh, the politics is he's just on the wrong side of history. 
um, you know, how much would he back climate deniers? Or, or, or it, it, it makes zero sense politically. Uh, we actually don't know how many of these MPs are refusing or are not vaccinated. Uh, a lot of them are vaccinated, don't want to say a lot. It, it, it's just a little bit, if, if he cannot even control this, uh, you're on the wrong side of history, you're going against the national interest of Canadians on this issue. Uh, you think that the MPs have more privileges than anybody else in Canada because they want to be able to walk into Parliament without being vaccinated, but they can't go across the street to the restaurant to have a, a, a snack. So it, it, it makes zero sense that he would cave and, and be so vague on his position. He says, yes, I am for vaccines. Everybody should get vaccinated except for my MPs. It makes zero sense, and it's not going to make him any more popular, and I don't think that it's going to make Canadians look at him as a possible alternative to Justin Trudeau. Uh, okay, Steph, weigh in on that, because obviously there's lots of issues about vaccines, vaccine equity issues globally, as everyone's, you know, you, you just saw new, new uh, transportation uh, rules coming into effect, and everyone's saying, yeah, everybody in the airport is going to be mandatory vaccinated. And Aaron O'Toole seems to be ready for a fight on this in, in, in Parliament on November 22nd. What's your take on, on, on where this is all going? Well, here's one thing. Aaron O'Toole doesn't have the power to kick his own MPs out of caucus. At the beginning of their very first meeting after the election, the same meeting where MPs voted to give themselves the power to oust O'Toole, they also voted to give themselves the power, and only them the power, to kick members out of their caucus. They have to decide as a unit if these views are off limits. They have to decide as a collective that they want to kick people out. And yes, of course, Mr. O'Toole could set the tone from the top. He could say, I don't like this. I don't like that there are folks in this caucus who are refusing to get vaccinated. I am not comfortable with you sitting as a member of my caucus. But let's also remember Aaron O'Toole is on a very short leash. So unless there is a critical mass of members of parliament and caucus who are willing to say and collectively put their foot down, just as lots of other people have collectively put their foot down on the issue of vaccination and say, listen, if you are not vaccinated and part of my caucus, I don't want you here, then it's not going to happen. That issue is clearly not going away. All right, uh, we're out of time. That is question period for this week. Tom, Joyce, Steph, great to have the three of you on the program. And thank all of you for watching. There's lots of news as COP26 kicks off and we'll have all that coverage when I see you on Power Play tomorrow night, 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV News Channel. But for now, hug your loved ones, never take that for granted. And we'll be back here in seven short days.